Welcome to Lost in the Movies. This episode is part of the Twin Peaks Cinema series that appears every few months. In October, it's going to become a monthly series with its own feed. But for now, it's part of this overall podcast where I look at a movie and I draw out the comparisons to the TV show Twin Peaks, the David Lynch, Mark Frost show from the early 90s. And so far, and continuing with this episode, I'm going to be focusing on a director who actually directed an episode of Twin Peaks. In this case, Tim Hunter, with his film River's Edge, which actually has a very interestingly similar uh, story premise to Twin Peaks, although it takes it in different directions. So we'll talk about that, and if you have any thoughts on this film, please write in via email or Twitter or as a comment, however you want to do it, and I'll share your thoughts on the air on this film on Twin Peaks broadly. And obviously this episode will contain spoilers for uh, Twin Peaks. Kind of hard to discuss these films without doing that. So if you haven't seen Twin Peaks yet, maybe put this one on hold, unless you don't care about spoilers. The last episode covered Spirited Away, and since then on my site, I posted a Twin Peaks status update where I put a preview clip of my uh, Mark Frost video I've been working on on one of the co-creators and his other work outside of Twin Peaks. It's going to be, looks like my second longest of these uh, videos in this series, Journey Through Twin Peaks. It's a video essay, so clips and narration, a lot of work going into this. It's taken two months so far, by far the longest I've ever worked on a video uh, of this um, you know, like a single video essay clip, basically. I have some long ones on Vimeo, but uh, even those I think I didn't spend two months on. So this is going to be big when it comes out, uh, hopefully later this week, next week at the very latest. So keep an eye out for that. And also on my Patreon, uh, another Twin Peaks uh, theme thing this week, I put up a, uh, or I opened up an episode on uh, my Lost in Twin Peaks podcast, going over the whole series, on the first episode after the killer's reveal, episode 17. So you can check that out for a dollar a month, and there's other ones available for $5 a month beyond that, if you want to check that out. So let's jump into River's Edge and uh, draw out those Twin Peaks connections. Where's Jamie? Killed her. This is unreal, completely unreal. Lane saying Samson killed Jamie. And you believe them? Well, a bunch of us are going out there to check it out. I don't know. It's probably some joke. There's a very big secret in a small American town. We can't panic, though. We're dead if we panic, okay? You say, Lane, I killed a girl once. I was in love. Bury her. She's never found. Did they do it out of friendship? You don't give a damn. I don't give a damn. Nobody in this classroom gives a damn that she's dead. Or did they do it just for fun? Let me go. You're going to bring her back? It's done. A murder, a cover-up, and then a betrayal. You have seen her face, Clarissa. You keep seeing her face. River's Edge is an interesting piece of 80s cinema in a lot of ways. Uh, the actors that it brings on board, some of whom it more or less introduced, I think. This is certainly one of Keanu Reeves' early films. And also just the trends it's a part of. I mean, even Dennis Hopper's comeback, because that certainly relates to Lynch. And just the general milieu of the teenagers, the kind of lives they lead, uh, how that 
is reflected in other media of the time and everything like that. So the story is about a group of teens, uh, high schoolers. The main one, kind of our protagonist, more or less, is Matt, played by Keanu Reeves. His good friend is Lane, played by Crispin Glover in classic Crispin Glover fashion. In fact, it was well promoting this movie that Crispin Glover went on David Letterman and freaked out and made all of his weird kind of appearances. I think there were two at the time, back to back, one where he wore a wig and tried to kick Dennis, uh, David Letterman. And then the next one, he shows up in, I think, a suit and is acting all calm, except he's laughing hysterically all the time. And, you know, people are like, is he on acid? Is this performance art? Uh, it's fascinating to watch. I'll link those below and I definitely recommend you checking them out. But so he's in this movie and uh, Dennis Hopper as an older character who sell, who actually just gives the, the teenagers drugs, doesn't even sell them to him, and has a blow-up doll that he treats as his girlfriend. And so all these teens are driving around kind of aimlessly. They're in school, they're talking, and they find out that one of their friends this big hulking guy named john whose actual name is samson they call him john as a play on his last name toilet which sounds like toilet they find out that well he just tells them outright that he killed someone he killed their friend jamie who may have been his girlfriend Uh, she was part of their group and they kind of laugh it off like okay sure you did man he's like no come on i'll show you and he takes him down by the river and sure enough there's a naked girl just lying there uh turning blue by the riverside and uh, the film opens with this image, more or less, because there's a young kid, Matt's younger brother, uh, Tim, played by Joshua John Miller, who drops a doll in the river, and then he turns and he sees uh, John there with Jamie's body. So he sees that before anyone else. And throughout the movie, he's kind of coming and going and tormenting his little sister and being yelled at and beaten up by Matt and, until eventually he tries to get a gun and aims it at his brother. And, you know, it's a whole other storyline kind of running through all of this. But the core of the story is these teenagers seeing that this girl has been killed, their own friend, and not really doing anything about it, talking amongst themselves, acting like it's kind of this weird, funky thing they saw, and uh, and then just going about their day. And a few of them express reservations, not just Matt but also uh, Clarissa, played by Ione Sky. I don't know how to pronounce her name, but she's the, the lead in Say Anything. She and Matt, are who are drawn to each other and end up sleeping together near the climax of the film, they're both expressing reservations, but still in a nonchalant way. Nobody's like, oh my God, you killed someone, and freaks out and has a big dramatic scene. They're all just like, oh, whoa, she's dead. This is crazy. And they're all bouncing off the energy they're 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 giving off. It's like all of them know it would somehow be uncool to be like upset about this, and also maybe don't really feel that way and are wondering why. There's a character in the film who's a teacher who's part of the '60s generation, and he yells at all of them, "Why did you know? Why doesn't anybody care? We wouldn't be here in this classroom if we cared that she was dead." After it's discovered that she's died, so. As the film goes along, Lane takes it upon himself to protect John. He's very insistent that they all have to look out for him because, okay, Jamie's gone, but John's still here. We gotta. It makes excuses for why he killed her. Oh, she mouthed off and this and that. And in some ways, he seems like the most amoral or immoral or nonchalant character of all of them. But in some ways, he's actually the one who cares the most because he has this devotion to this cause, to this idea of loyalty to John that they can't betray him. Whereas the others are kind of like, man, he's gone. Like, just let him go. He's he's out of his mind. Like, he, he can't be saved or whatever. 
So, uh, you know, skip ahead 30 seconds if you don't want to hear the end of the movie, but I think it's worth discussing. Uh, Dennis Hopper, uh, the, the, the character who, who killed a woman when he was a young man, he was part of a biker gang, lost his leg in an accident, and he had a, a lover who he shot. And he tells other people about this all the time, but he's still kind of shocked by John's behavior because he loved this woman and it was a crime of passion and he's still tormented by it, whereas John just seems completely cold and uh, just not upset in any way that he killed this the, his girlfriend, that he's proud of it in a way. It gave him a feeling, a rush, a feeling of being alive. So uh, Dennis Hopper's character kills him, uh, almost like a mercy killing in a way, like the character doesn't want to live but also not not with his permission he just shoots him while he's sleeping so that's the film that's the story of the film uh there's a bit of a redemption arc and for Matt since he's the one who first goes to the police and reports the crime so we can see his humanity there and this relates to Twin Peaks in some really obvious ways so first of all we have a dead girl washing up on the shore, or in this case, she was killed on the shore, but being right there on the shore of like a, a river or a lake in Twin Peaks's case. In this film, she's dead. She, I mean, she's, dead. she's naked, um, lying there completely exposed, and that's part of the shock value. Just her, it's almost like an art object, like lying there as she turns blue and her fingernails are sort of turning yellow and everything, and they're all just staring at her. They think it's a dummy. They, they literally, like, think it's, like, almost like an art project at first. They're poking the body and, like, oh, this was she playing dead? Is this some kind of joke? And, you know, going along with it. Where, um, in Laura's case, obviously, she's shrouded in plastic. That's partly a TV censorship issue. In the original script for the pilot, Laura Palmer was supposed to be on a raft naked, washing up on the shore. And I wonder if Lynch saw this film and it played out in his inspiration for Twin Peaks in any way because certainly he I believe went to AFI with Tim Hunter like he knew him from back in the day and also of course Dennis Hopper appeared in Blue Velvet right at the same time River's Edge came out so there's a good chance even just for that reason Lynch would have seen it he also ends up using Crispin Glover uh, later on in Wild at Heart and Frederick Elm shot both Blue Velvet and River's Edge so there's a bunch of Lynch connections in the film even before the Twin Peaks plot device lifted almost wholesale from this. Tim Hunter of course eventually came on and directed uh, Twin Peaks several episodes and there's some super interesting stuff about that to me related to episode 16 his middle episode. That's the one in which Leland is uh is captured confesses to killing laura and then uh, bob leaves him and he's crying and cooper holds him and guides him into the light and there's a sense in the in the show of like compassion for this character who's done a terrible thing and not really judging so much like it's not about like look at how evil leland is it's more kind of contemplating it in a poignant way in some sense and I can find that frustrating at times because it plays into this whole sort of supernatural, the, the, the aspect of the supernatural mythos, which makes it seem like it's giving Leland an excuse or something. Uh, I, find, I found when I watched River's Edge, which I first watched around 2014 or 2015, so while I was in my real thrust of my work on Twin Peaks, you know, the creating the videos and all of that and rewatching Lynch's films, it struck me that this, in a way offers a window onto episode 16 and the feeling that Tim Hunter took into that. I think not even so much with the John character, although him to a certain extent, like, you, you know, he isn't 
this hateful, spiteful person. He's just this indifferent, somehow emotionally dead guy. And supposedly, you know, they play with different aspects of that as well, because supposedly part of the reason he strangled her was that she said something about his dead mother, and he's really, you know, somebody says, oh, he's really, uh, you know, that that's a sore subject for him or something kind of banal like that. And so even in his case, there's some sort of emotional motivation there where he does care about something. That's what leads him to kill her. But he's also kind of dead. He even says at one point, I'm dead. The character that I think plays out more, that moral ambiguity in River's Edge that you see in episode 16, or ambiguity of responsibility and whether somebody is still a good person after doing something evil and all of that, is the Dennis Hopper character. Uh, the character, his name is Feck, by the way. Because he is really disturbed by the fact that this younger guy didn't feel anything, didn't care about the person he killed, and he has a moral code of his own, which is, well, yeah, you can kill someone, and it happens, but you got to like feel bad or feel something about it. Like it, it has to. There's no, there's no hope if you can't feel that at least. I think watching this film, I, I could see Tim Hunter's sensibility in that sense. Now he didn't write the screenplay. Granted, still, I think there's definitely a similar sensibility in how he executes it, how he directs the performances, and and all of that. Uh, the the screenplay, by the way, is written by Neil Jimenez, who was a college student at the time of the the real murder that took place that inspired River's Edge. He says in a USC talk, Tim Hunter, at some point, uh, where he came to USC and talked with all the other cast and crew of Twin Peaks about the show, that he always tries to find humanity and a compassion in his work, even towards the villains and so you really see that play out and i think in episode 16 now the way that it interacts with other elements of the story i think can be sort of a problem but you really see where that whole investment in that ending comes from even though again he's not writing it but he's coming to it with a mentality of like yes this is how we should do it and working with ray wise who also felt like he wanted to give leland some sort of humanity in this situation i think in that sense you can see a real correspondence between the works uh, in terms of how they're filmed, I didn't notice quite as much dramatic camera work in River's Edge as, uh, it, at least it didn't jump out at me in the way it does, particularly in Hunter's season one episode of Twin Peaks, where he uses a lot of wide lenses and tricks like the diopter that uh, keeps background and foreground and focus. And he's talked about Touch of Evil and Otto Preminger as influences on that. I didn't see quite as much of that here. It's worth noting, too, that Tim Hunter has gone on to direct episodes of Mad Men, episodes of, I think, Breaking, yeah, Breaking Bad as well. You can trace some of his themes and interests through those works, even though often he'll adopt the house style. I think in Twin Peaks, maybe, actually, ironically, where he's working under the aegis of David Lynch, might actually be his own most pronounced personal style that I've seen. Back to River's Edge, something that interests me about it in, in comparison to Twin Peaks is the opposite reactions that the characters have to Laura's death. So Twin Peaks is all about the very over-the-top grief and mourning whereas in River's Edge, they're all very numb to it. And the small town life presented is also quite different in these two works. In River's Edge, there's more of a chaotic, kind of downscale feeling to it. The mother's always dressed to go off to work as, uh, I think, a nurse. And 
living with a stepfather and the kids are messing around the house and they're all bumping around. They're out. They don't listen to their parents. There's a sense in which this is more working class community in some way than in Twin Peaks where maybe it's more of a solidly middle class community. And certainly in terms of authority figures and the parental relationships, the parents, the older generation has much more of a presence in Twin Peaks. And even though you get scenes like Mike and Bobby driving around much like uh, Matt and Lane in uh, River's Edge, they're still under the thumb of a structure in a way that I don't think the characters in River's Edge quite are. River's Edge is more explicitly a look at what would then have been the modern post-60s society where order had disintegrated and the kids were lost in this unmoored universe, whereas Twin Peaks is rooted much more in sort of a 50s sense where there's these kids, they may be delinquents, they're rebelling against a system, but the system has power as well for good or bad. Uh, often it seems for good, kind of reining them in somehow, whether it's their loving relationships to these parents who care about them and have some sort of discipline or order in the household. Or if it's something like um, just the kids themselves having more of a conscience. But there is a lot of similarity there. These kids are going around trying to deal with all of this themselves, without going to the parents or the authorities, which is very much both Twin Peaks and, and River's Edge. I think really the pilot of Twin Peaks, more than any other episode maybe, where you have these kids, hey, let's meet at the roadhouse, sneaking out the window and all of that. That episode, the more I think about it, the more it feels like the pilot actually may be heavily consciously influenced by River's Edge in that way. But in Twin Peaks, the murder seems to bubble up from underneath society's surface or even come in from elsewhere, from the woods, from the outside world. In River's Edge, it grows directly out of the surface of society that we see. There's a sense in which this culture has created the conditions for this murder to happen, whereas with Twin Peaks and with Blue Velvet as well, it comes in as an exception. Lynch's version of the normal is very old-fashioned, so the normal life that's disrupted by these shocking events is very consciously and a heightened, nostalgic version of, of normality, which makes the contrast all the greater. Now, that could make it seem a little dated or not land quite as well because it's not as relatable of like an everyday reality being disrupted. But I think because what Lynch places beyond that normality is it's so radical, more so than anything we see in River's Edge or other films. It's so surreal. It feels uncanny in a way that it, it actually is able to still retain the shock value that we might normally get from having more of an identification with what's on screen before it's disrupted, if, if that makes sense. I don't know. It's sort of a complicated idea to describe. The film is also interesting to me in terms of its generational politics. So the characters are all Gen Xers, basically, these teenagers, 16, 17, in 1986, some as young as 12, the one kid who's smoking weed and, and tries to shoot his brother and everything. Uh, the You know, these characters are very quintessentially early mode of Gen X, before they got the media name and the grunge came up, and they were these disaffected post-60s kids who couldn't quite be slotted in. But they also blur and blend in a little with that 70s, early 80s conception of the teenager, of like the late boomers who came of age post-60s, had all the sex and the drugs that their parents probably didn't have quite as much of and had less of a structure surrounding them to keep them in line or supposedly. So there's this whole move and, and this character who is this boomer who talks about the 60s 
he's trying to thread a line of saying, yes, we rebelled. We may have destroyed these structures or systems that at least reduced their authority, but uh, it was for a purpose. It was for a reason. You know, we were fighting the war. We were fighting to survive and all of this stuff. It was about something, civil rights, the women's movement. And the kids just kind of go, yeah, man, it's great to fuck up pigs or something. He's like, no, that's not the point. He's a very on the nose character, like absurdly on the nose. And this was a new concept at the time where now, you know, at this point, the film was made 20 years out from the 60s this character's in his 30s so he's still pretty young but he's now part of a generation that's being surpassed by the younger generation interesting to look at them toying with this idea for early on in the culture for for this sort of trope of like the ex the ex-rebel teacher or something angry at the kids because they're rebels but they don't have the rebels without a cause basically and also of course the first rebel without a cause james dean that whole film that was the silent generation and dennis hopper who is actually in rebel without a cause he's in this as like the older generation who has this so the difference between those two types of rebels i think is this idea of rebelling without emotion this blank numb disaffection versus what this the earlier delinquent generation is usually presented as almost feeling too much like kicking out at frustration in this sterile society because they have these emotions they don't understand what to do with so there's this yawning generation gap in this film not even so much between the boomers and the gen xers but maybe the xers and the silent generation i think that's an interesting angle to look at it from they're also a little bit there's hints they're sort of right wing certainly there's like a streak of misogyny running through the film which gets very i mean the characters not so much the film itself necessarily but it gets very taken for granted by them including by the female characters where they're just kind of commenting on the fact that, gee, maybe he even raped his girlfriend. And of course, just even the fact that he killed her, that he strangled there and left her there is this body that they all stare at, very objectified. That aspect of it is taken for granted. And these kids who are rebels against so many things are not, you know, Lane is just talks about it like it's almost like cool and rebellious that he killed his girlfriend for mouthing off to him. And I think you get a very 80s sense in this where rebellion is often coded in these right-wing ways. He even rants about welfare and Russia attacking the America, and this, this is why society's weakening. So again, he's an interesting character to me because he is the one who tries the hardest to have a moral code out of any of them, even though it's this warped moral code which leads him arguably the most the furthest away from morality. He's gripping tightly to this idea of like, no, you do, you stay loyal to your friends, and all the other kids are even beyond that. So there's a wonderful irony to that. So that's it for this episode. If you enjoyed what you heard, you want to hear more, I encourage you to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. If you really like what you heard or you just want to, you know, you like my work in general, you want to support it, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. Uh, For a dollar a month, you get access to hundreds and hundreds of hours of podcasts I've recorded since 2018. So far for this podcast, these have been pulled from that archive. They're just the tip of the iceberg. And as I go on, I record new episodes for the public podcast uh, that the the iceberg below the surface will be getting even larger. And for $5 a month, you can get the newest episodes of my Lost in Twin Peaks rewatch podcast, which are put on delay for everyone else. So all that, uh, you know, obviously very uh, uh, Twin Peaks heavy episode. Next episode in two weeks will not be specifically tied to Twin Peaks, although I think uh, when I recorded this, I may have 
mentioned Lynch a few times. Uh, this film, usually I like to just let the play the trailer and let you guess what it is. Um, this, I think, it's not exactly obscure. It's from a few years ago. It's definitely got a cult following. Uh, I only discovered it because a patron recommended it to me, and I decided to to cover it on here and watch it for the first time. So this review actually uh, is going to talk about the film totally fresh without having read anything, and then I sort of paused the recording went off, did some research, and came back and talked about what people's theories about this film are. So I'm going to play the trailer, see what you think, and then afterwards I'll say what it is. That film is Upstream Color. That's it for this episode. See you next time.